But the high priest rose up and those with him, and that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and taking them out, he said, go and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. And now when the high priest and those who were with him, they are called the Sanhedrin, even all the council of the sons of Israel, and they sent orders to the jailhouse for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We have found the jailhouse locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. And now when the, cap- the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men who you put in the prison are standing in the temple, and they are teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned, that is, pelted with rocks. (laughs) That would be funny. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly commanded you not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey him. Bow your heads with me as we... Look at this text. Jesus, we, we, we love you. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for the reality that there is the ability to have relationship with you and fellowship with you. And I pray, Jesus, tonight that, that what would be communicated to your people, I often don't like to ask for something specific, but Lord, tonight I just feel pressed to to request a sense of just deep trust. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that you uphold the entire universe by the word of your power. You are trustworthy. You are good. You are not caught off guard. You are not scared. You are not concerned. You are not worried. You are in complete and total control. You know all things. You are sovereign. The problem, Lord, is with us. So I pray, Lord, that tonight what, what we read in this text would, would build in our hearts a palpable trust, despite circumstance, that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would have affection for you, and that we would know that you are working all things for the good, even things that here and now seem awful and hard and are awful and hard. Lord, you're no stranger to that. Anybody could have looked at the cross and cried out saying, what good could possibly come from this? And it was you working brilliantly to bring salvation to every tongue and every tribe and every nation. So Lord, help us to set our wisdom aside and to trust you and your wisdom in everything that you do. We love you, Jesus, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So as, as we dive into this text tonight, the first thing that I want to consider is, is, a, is a thought, it's a question to just take us through this text. And that, and that question is, what, 
what would it, what would it require for you to feel secure about life? And that's sort of a broad question, but what would it require? What would you need? What, would, what, would it, what thing do you think, well, if I had that, I'd be okay? Health, that's a big one. If I had my health, things would be okay. Or maybe if I had the money to pay doctors to help me get my health. Or maybe if I had the money to buy a home that was to some sort of standard that I have set in my mind would bring me peace and satisfaction and that I would have less anxiety. My anxiety would be assuaged if I had this thing. What is that? What we've seen as we've continued through the book of Acts is that the church has taken a beating. And we're going to see that the church and the individuals who make up the church are going to continue to take a beating, but that beating is never going to actually beat the church down. It's not going to stop the church from growing. It seems like these sort of setbacks and impediments and persecutions would prevent the church from expanding and from flourishing. And what we've seen time and time again already just here in, cha- just in chapter 5, that the opposite has actually been true. And it's because the God of the universe, the God of the church who has saved us, drawn us, fills us with his spirit, is a God that cannot be defeated. He is perfect, he is trustworthy, and he does things the way that he sees fit for our best. And that best may not always be comfortable and it may not always be what we want, but it's why we have to again and again and again die to our own expectations, die to our own hopes and presumptions and opinions and believe what scripture tells us to be true. You look at the church in the early days of it growing and you would think this is a, this is a doomed venture. This isn't working out. There's already been arrests. There's going to be beatings. There's going to be persecutions that will lead all the way up to murder. People will be chased out of their homes and yet the church is going to grow and flourish and the gospel is going to save people. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And what these people have in the midst of their circumstances that are very much a bummer, they have peace and they have confidence because it's not their circumstances they have faith in, it's God that they have faith in. It's the resurrected Jesus that they have faith in. We're going to see it again and again and again. They are facing, they're going to face persecution that is going from this point in the book just going to get worse and worse and worse, and we are promised that in Scripture. First Peter 2.20 says, If you do what is right and suffer for it, endure patiently, for this finds favor with God. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. The The thing that we have that cannot be taken away, what the disciples had, what the apostles had that could not be taken away, give it prison, beatings, financial reversal, whatever else that the state threw at them, that the people threw at them, what what they could not take away and what nobody can take away from us is our relationship with the living Christ, the God of the entire cosmos. Nobody can take that away from you. Paul, the apostle, had a lot of security wrapped up in his resume, in his discipline, in his diligence, in his work ethic. And in Philippians 3, he says, I throw it all away. I consider it rubbish. I consider it feces for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And friends, I know what it's like experientially to read those words, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, and think, I could do without that. 
the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Well, what is that worth? Well, I was wrong. <laughs> Every good thing that I ever had in my life that I thought, oh, I've got the, I've got the relationship, I've got the experience, I've got the hitchhiking thing done, I've, 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 I've marked off some of my bucket list, all of that goes away the minute that you're dead. All of it goes away the minute that you lose your mobility, lose your health, lose your money. Everything here on, in life will decay and be taken away one way or another. But the resurrected Christ, his life that is overqualified for death, is available to you because of the work of the cross, and nobody can take it away. And so what Peter says is that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And everything in this life is perishable, it's defiled, and it's fading very quickly. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ is the surpassing worth of having an infinite life for all of eternity. Not just a length of time, but of a quality where there is no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more decay, no more atrophy, no more disease, no more illness, no more death, no more love going away. None of that. That's all passed away. Life, joy, forever, in fellowship, relationship for all of eternity. That's what these guys have. That's what these men and women have. And it's what you have if you're a believer here tonight. And it's what you could have if you're here tonight and you're not a believer. And that's why these men and women continue with such confidence. The high priest rose up, verse 17, and they were filled with jealousy. The high priest here, we've gone over this. It could be Annas. It could be Caiaphas. We've covered that. And they were filled with jealousy. Remember, these, these men in this leadership position, this, this, the, the, the leadership of, the, of religion in Israel, they liked their position. They liked having power over the people. And whenever the, the apostles started gaining popularity, that threatened the position and the power of the religious leaders. Because if these guys get popular, we lose our influence. If these guys start a revolt, Rome will come in, squash it, and then discipline us for letting it get out of hand. So one way or another, this Jesus movement is bad news for us. And so they're filled with jealousy, and once again, they try to put a stop to it. And the only way that they have available to them, verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and taking them out, he said, go and speak to the people in the temple this whole, the whole message of this life. I have to just comment. It would, I think that it would be kind of, you know, this is the second time this, that Peter and John have been arrested. But now it seems that they were, now this time they, they arrested all of the apostles or at least most of them. And I think that it would be kind of cool for just like the hour and a half, you know, getting arrested with 12 other Christians and being being locked up with them, it'd be kind of fun for a minute. It wouldn't be fun for very long because eventually they separate you all out. But that'd be kind of cool, man, getting locked up, being handcuffed, face down, eating concrete with all the homies in the cell. I just think that that would be cool for a minute. And so that's where these guys are. And as we'll see, this is also speaks to a mystery because this miraculous escape from prison that we're, about to, that we're about to consider, it happens again in chapter 12 with Peter. It happens again in chapter 16 with Paul. And so prison doors, jail cells, bars are no match for the gospel. No match for stopping God's word from going forth. But then, but we also see like John the Baptist, he went to jail, he never got out. He was killed in prison. We know that later in Paul's life, he was in jail a lot and he didn't escape. 
he too eventually got his head cut off. So there's this mystery here, it's, and it's all God's sovereignty. It's all his plan. Here, these guys get busted out miraculously. Later, they don't. Why? This side of heaven will never know. Do you trust God? Do you trust what he's doing? Don't trust your circumstances. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors. And I love that. It's perfect because the Sadducees, which we read about in verse 17, they're there. They were there and they, they got these guys wrangled up and put in jail. They don't even believe in angels. And yet an angel smacked the Sadducees in the face. An angel is the one who came and let these men out. He opened the doors and he said to them, verse 20, go and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. This, this, this life, that's the life, it's the word zoe in the Greek. It's not biological life. It's spiritual life. It's eternal life. Go and tell the people about this life. The first designation that's given to the Christian movement is the term life. Before they were called Christians, before they were called the way, this energy, this thing, all this miraculous power and all of this teaching and all of this, all of this scuttling that came about, all of, this, all of this chaos that these guys were causing, bringing people into the faith, thousands and thousands and thousands of people getting saved. There's Pentecost. There's the speaking in tongues. There's the building that shook in verse 31 of chapter 4. All of this, it was called the life. What kind of people were these? They, they, were, they were so bold, but they were so kind at the same time. You know, they were submitted to the authorities. They let themselves get arrested, but then they were wildly disobedient. They were told, don't preach in this name, and they said, sorry, going to do it. Don't care what you say. Don't care what you tell us. They shared and they loved each other radically. They were selling properties. They were selling land to give to the poor in their community. And this term life is also very fitting because they were a group of people who were preaching that Christ had risen to life from the dead. This is a different kind of life. This is the life that we Christians have in us, God the Spirit alive inside of us. This is a life that is lived, that is affected by fellowship with God himself, which is what Christians have. We preach spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. He is the source of life. He is the sustainer of life. We have that life, and it affects the way that we live our lives and to those outside the church, they saw it, they comprehended some of it, but they also didn't get it. And they were trying to snuff it out. And the angel says, go and preach more about this. First John 1 says, we, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim to you. And this is that we have fellowship, that, we, that you have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is this is salvation. This is, this is life. To have fellowship, not just intellectual understanding, not objective information, but fellowship, intimate fellowship with the risen Christ. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that word know is used in scripture to actually describe sexual intimacy. This is an intimate effectual knowing that this is the difference between our belief in Jesus and the devil's belief in Jesus. The devil knows the Bible. He knows Jesus. He's talked to him face to face. But he doesn't embrace. He believes in Jesus. He does not embrace Jesus, and that's the difference. These apostles, believers today, we have fellowship 
with the risen Christ. And this affects the way that we live. And these men are told not to go and hide. Hey, we got you out of jail. Now scurry off and don't show your faces around town until things cool down. He says, go, continue. Continue preaching. Continue telling about this life. This is boldness. And so this is what they go and do. Upon hearing this, verse 21, they entered the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. And now when the high priest and those who were with him called the Sanhedrin and even the council and all the sons of Israel, sent orders to the jailhouse to have them brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and they reported back saying, we found the jailhouse locked securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened it, there was no one inside. And now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about what would come from this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. This is the confidence that was prayed for in chapter 4, verse 29. They said, now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. Chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with confidence. And now they are continuing to speak the word of God with confidence. And if you're reading this and you have even, a, even the, a, the slightest sense of self-preservation, you would think, this is so stupid. The definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. May I suggest to you that the foolishness of God is the wisdom of men, and the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. We don't, this is a different kingdom. This is a different set of rules. It's not our power. The entire movement of Acts is the reversal of Babel. Babel is men and women thinking, I can do this on my own power. I'm going to make a name for myself. I got some brick. I got some mortar. And I'm going to go real high with it. It takes diligence. It takes strength. It takes power. It takes wisdom. It takes smarts. And God says, well, no, we're going we're gonna to build an everlasting kingdom and it's going to happen in ways that you can't even imagine. It's not going to make any sense to you and the stones are going to be living stones. It's going to be you. You're going to be God's house. You're going to be God's church. So they have this confidence. They have this power and they're preaching. And some sort of weird miracle here took place. I don't even know what to think of this. Not only did they get past the locked doors, but they got past the standing guards. I don't know how it happened but God made it happen. I don't know how one day I want to watch it on Blu-ray whenever we get to heaven. I want to watch it play out in real time, but for now it's a mystery. But this persecution led to another miracle. This, this We're going to arrest you. We're going to confine you. We're going to control you. We're going to put you in prison. That led to another miracle that confounded the religious leaders that had them arrested and it emboldened the believers. Persecution, again, is just serving to make the church that much more powerful. So verse 26, the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. There's a lot of jokes in there that I go on with, but I'm just going to ignore them because we're going to get short on time tonight. But they were even, even the people, the people loved the apostles. Even if they didn't completely understand them, they loved them. But I also, I also think that it's worth noting that the, 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 the apostles, and especially Peter, because he's the one who's already been known to go for violence, 
He chose violence in the garden against them. And he pulled his sword. He went for a guy's head. He missed. He lopped off an ear. And he's not pulling swords anymore. He's not throwing punches. He's submitting to this authority again and again. They don't, they don't try to stop themselves from getting arrested, but they don't even try to get the people to do their dirty work. If I wanted to clean conscience and I was being arrested in this situation, what I might do is knowing that the people are kind of volatile, I might provoke them. Hey, I didn't throw a punch, but hey, they're arresting us. Guys, sick them. I might do that. I might hide behind the fact that everyone else here really loved the apostles, so much so that the, that the people who came to arrest them knew that they were taking their lives into their own hands. They were afraid of the people that they might get stoned. These people are going to pick up rocks and throw them at these, at, these, at these authorities' heads. Why not just stand behind that? Why not just let them defend you? But they don't. They're submitted. They're trusting the Lord. In verse 27, so when they had brought them, they stood them before the Sanhedrin and the high priest and questioned them saying, we strictly command you not to continue teaching in this name. We strictly did command you not to, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The disciples were submitted. They went peacefully, and yet they were disobedient. They did exactly what they were told not to do. And despite, all the, despite the jail, and despite the threats, they filled Jerusalem with this teaching. The gospel is going forth because it is under God's power and not our own. And you intend, this is, just, this is just playing ignorant. This is just playing dumb. They know better than this. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. As if that's some sort of accusation, but that's exactly what the religious leaders did. That's precisely what they did. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 25 The people cried out, let his blood be on us and on the heads of our children. And let's not forget that even the people who cried out for that, cried out for Jesus' blood, the gospel is being brought forth to them. The gospel in grace is being brought to them. You, this, this salvation is available. Remember what Peter said in his first sermon, the gift of the Holy Spirit is available to you and your children. Let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Peter says, let the gift of the Holy Spirit be for you and for your children. And it's just this argument from silence maybe, but they don't bring up the fact that these guys broke out of jail. Why? My guess is that for what it's worth, my guess isn't worth anything, but they're probably a little embarrassed. And they certainly don't know how to explain it. And certainly people got in trouble. You were standing guard. What happened? What'd you see? I don't know. I didn't see anything. You're fired. Maybe even killed. They don't even bring it up. We commanded you to stop talking. We commanded you to stop preaching in this name. And Peter says to them, verse 29, with the apostles and answered, we must obey God rather than men. And there there it is, friends. It's the same thing that Peter said in chapter 4, verse 19. And he's saying a couple of things here. One of them is very clear. We We must obey God rather than men. And so that's saying that, first of all, Whenever the law of the land, as submitted as these guys are, they're, they're, they're being arrested without any sort of revolt or without any sort of, uh, without any sort of, of protest. Uh, and so 
in that sense, they're submitted. In that sense, they're being obedient. But the reason why they're getting arrested and submitting to that is because they're breaking the rules. When God's law and man's law come to clash, we choose God's law every single time. If somebody ever, if, if the day ever comes in the United States where the, the law of the land is thou shalt not preach in the name of Jesus, then there's going to be hopefully a lot of pastors going to jail because we cannot stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And that not just pastors, but a lot of Christians are going to end up in jail because we cannot, we must obey God rather than men. But the other thing that Peter is saying is that these religious leaders who think that they're serving God, who claim to be serving God, they're, they're not. They're in opposition to God. Peter could have said, we must obey you, and then we'll also be obeying God, but that's not what he says. He says, we must obey God rather than you. He pits them against the very God they claim to serve because they're not. They're deceived. Peter is saying, you're opposed to God, and what God is doing is opposed to you. We must obey God and not you. These same religious leaders, remember Jesus warned them in John chapter 8, warning them, not trying to be vindictive or just insolent or mean or cruel. He was warning them. He said in John 8, you are of your father the devil. Those are hard words, strong words, but Jesus was warning them. You think you're safe. You think you're good. You think you're saved. You're actually of your father the devil. And Peter says we must obey God rather than you. And this is also saying that a saved people are obedient people. This is a people whose lives are lived, affected by fellowship with the living Christ. We come into greater and greater obedience of God. We must obey God. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. But this one God exalted to his right hand as a leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who obey him. The God of our fathers, Peter's again indicating here, he's saying here, that I'm not just making this up. This, this life, this Jesus movement, the way, this, this, what you think is some sort of insurrection or some sort of tumult or some sort of disturbance, this is, this is, this is of God. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is, this is your guys' God. This isn't new. This isn't novel. We're not just throwing together some sort of theology and hoping that it sticks. This is biblically, Old Testament, exactly what is supposed to go down. The God of our fathers. This is the language from Exodus chapter 3 where, Jesus, where the Lord said, God, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. The same, this is the same God. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. This is his Jesus. This is not new. This is not fiction. You guys think that it is, but you're opposed to God when you think that you're actually serving him. Remember, remember Jesus warned his apostles about this, and, and that warning is also for us. He said that there will come a day when those who kill you will think that they're offering service to God. Peter is saying, no, this is, this is the same God. You, you guys are sorely mistaken. The God of our fathers, he raised this Jesus up, and you put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
This is exactly what they just accused Peter of doing. They said, you intend to put this man's blood on us. And Peter says, yep, you put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He says the same thing in chapter 2, chapter 3, and in chapter 4. But the, and the accusation, the accusation sticks. It absolutely sticks. And they didn't just kill him. Peter says here that you kill, you put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That wasn't, that wasn't a mistake. That had, that had deep significance for the people of Israel. Listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 22, we read this. And if a man has committed a sin, the judgment of which is death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. And if you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall sh- surely bury him on the same day, because cursed of God is he who hangs on a tree, so that you do not make unclean your land, which Yahweh your God has given you as an inheritance. You know, when they cried out for Jesus' crucifixion, they weren't just trying to kill him, they were trying to damn him. They wanted him to be cursed of God. They wanted him to hang on a tree until he was dead because they wanted him in hell. This is a serious accusation. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And Peter says, not only did you put him to death, but you put him to death trying to evoke the most sincere curse, the most intense curse on him imaginable. You hung him on a tree. That is how you killed him. The accusation sticks. But the emphasis again and again is not just on, it's not just you killed him, period. That's never what Peter says. He emphasizes the resurrection. He, he emphasizes God brought him to life. God, the God of our fathers, raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree. This one God exalted to the right hand, to his right hand as a leader and as a savior. He says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 23, verse 36. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus is raised from the dead. You killed him, yes. You put to death the author of life, Peter said. But the thing about the author of life is he cannot stay dead. He cannot stay dead. You killed his body, but his life was overqualified for death. And so he rose again from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And we also get a little bit of a sneak peek of the Trinity here. Peter says, God raised him up, God raised him up, God raised him up. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, here in chapter 5, God raised him up. But remember, Jesus himself said in John chapter 2, I will raise up my life. He turned over the tables in the temple and the people said to him, on what authority do you do this? What sign do you show us? And Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they thought he was talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about the temple of his life, the temple of his body. I will raise it up in three days' time. John chapter 10, verse 18, I lay down my life only to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. But then we see here, God raised him up. God raised him up. God raised him up. It's the the Christian, it's Christian math. It doesn't make sense to our brain. Did Jesus raise himself from the dead, or did God raise him from the dead? And the biblical answer is yes, because God is three in one. He is three persons one deity. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the, and the Father are one. We saw this last week with Ananias and Sapphira. Did they lie to God or did they lie to the Holy Spirit? And again, the answer is yes. The Holy Spirit is God. 
We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey him. What Peter is saying here is Jesus offers us a forgiveness that we need. Out of his love, out of his grace, out of his pursuit of us, after his desire for us, he offers us a forgiveness that we need and a forgiveness that we cannot attain on our own. And so we have the opportunity to repent. We can repent. Repentance is an option. And so when we repent, we are forgiven. 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. That means that he's, it means that he's right. He's right to forgive us because the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ himself on the cross. So he offers forgiveness. He offers repentance. And we are given the Holy Spirit, and this is salvation. We are legally guiltless before God Almighty, and God's life is inside of us. And so we become obedient to the Father, gave the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, verse 32. Obedience is not how we get forgiveness and salvation, but obeying God is the direct hallmark of authentic salvation when we have been forgiven, when we have been saved. So now verse 33 to verse 42. But when they heard this, they became furious and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who were following him were dispersed and came to nothing. And then after this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away people after him and he too perished and all those who were following him were scattered. And so in the present case, I also say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or you may even be found fighting against God. And so they followed his advice. And after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So Peter, again, submitted kind. Remember he calls, you know, we could call him his enemies. Peter calls his enemies brothers. He calls them fellow men of Israel in his earlier sermons, but he doesn't hold back. He says, you killed Jesus. You're opposed to God. In verse 33, they heard this and they became furious. And this is, this is often what's going to happen. If you're a Christian tonight and you've ever told the, somebody about Jesus, very often they just get mad at you. Or they think you're stupid. They feel bad for you. They are condescending. They mock. Remember Pentecost? Everybody broke out speaking in tongues and the response from some people is, ah, they're drunk. All right. Can you handle that? Can you handle that? Because it's going to happen. I think that we often hesitate to tell people about Jesus because we think that it might be unloving because his name is offensive. But the most loving thing is an offensive thing. The name of Jesus 
is offensive. We're told it in Scripture again and again and again. These guys hear the gospel proclaimed. They hear that they killed Jesus, and they know that they did it. It wasn't that long ago that that whole thing, went, the whole crucifixion went down. They know that they actually, but they still become furious. It's the opposite of what happened at Pentecost. At Pentecost, Peter preached, and it says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they cried out, what must we do? Here, they become furious, and they want to kill the apostles. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death, and to another, we are a fragrance from life to life. That verse speaks for itself. You proclaim the name of Jesus, you preach forgiveness in his name alone, and you're called a bigot, a hate monger. I don't even know all of the things that you get called. You get called a lot of things. Generally, the stupid is the most common one. <laughs> Fair enough. Fine. That's the best you got. But we, we can't handle it. We can't handle it. I, I, told, I told you guys weeks, just weeks ago, I bumped into that woman who I overheard her phone conversation. She, told the doc, she was telling somebody she had three months to live. And I remember I, like, the pastor in me was like, oh, I got, I got to tell this woman about Jesus. She, she might die. She might be, as a sinner, going to hell. I have to tell her about Jesus. She was an 85-year-old woman. What is she going to do to me? Nothing. But I was scared. What is that? I don't know. It's dumb. That's what's dumb. Don't listen to that. Tell people about the Lord. They became furious, not because Peter said anything hateful or wrong or mean, but because he just told them the truth. They became furious. And to, 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 to them, Peter was the fragrance, fragrance of death. This is not licensed to be a bully. This is not licensed to be rude or vindictive when we proclaim the gospel. We don't need to be jerks. We're sinners, saved by grace. We have no right to stand on a high horse or a soapbox and beat people up. We have no right. We preach the gospel as people who have been saved by the gospel, and that alone is offensive. I don't like that that's true. I hate that that's true, but it's true. But I love Jesus, and I cannot not talk about him. I can't do it. I pray that that's true for you. I pray that that's true, and I pray that continues to be true for me, because if I get intimidated by an 85-year-old woman, I can be intimidated by anybody. It's the Lord's power. It's not our own. So Gamaliel speaks up. Gamaliel was the most famous Pharisee ever. And he believed in miracles. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Sadducees did not. And Gamaliel looks at what's going on. He sees that these guys got out of jail. And he's like, you know what, guys? Let's, let's slow it down. Let's slow it down. And we're going to learn in, from Acts chapter 22 that Gamaliel was actually the guy who was teaching Saul, the Pharisee, who would later become Paul, the apostle. Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, says, you know, Remember this? Remember Theodos? Remember, and you know what's cool is that is that is that extra biblical historical documents talk about Theodos. There's a lot of different Theoduses, and so we can't. There was a pretty common name, um, but one of there's a man named Theodos who who started a, a movement, and 400 people followed him. And you think that's a pretty significant following when you consider at Pentecost, God Himself comes to Earth dies on a cross, is miraculously raised three days later, spends 40 days ministering around. People, thousands and thousands of people saw his miracles. I mean, John 6 alone, there was 20,000 people there. They got fed. But at the, 
at the end, there at the, at, at the beginning of the church, there was only 120 people gathered. I mean, Theodos had 400. So this was a guy of some significance. But he was killed, and his movement came to nothing. And then Judas, and this, this Judas from, from the Galilean, we actually know a little bit more about him. Josephus writes about, about Judas. We know that he was from the area of the Golan Heights, which is the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus had fed those 20,000 people in John chapter 6. And in AD 6, he, he started a revolt, sort of this guerrilla warfare um, attack against the, the government because of unfair taxation. And he was killed, and the, the brunt force of his movement came to nothing, but a little bit of it lived on. There was some, some real hotheads who kept the, uh, the movement alive, and it actually grew to become uh, the group called the Zealots. And we know about the Zealots in history, and actually we're told that one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his disciples, who had become one of his apostles, was actually in this group the Zealots. It's Simon the Zealot. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4. I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you may even be found fighting against God. And you know, there's, some, there's, there's, there's truth here in what, in what Gamaliel is, is saying. But it may not be something that we realize here on this side of heaven. Because it's no secret that the efforts of men actually can go quite far. Our little towers of Babel can be quite successful. And I would even argue from the surface level perspective, far more successful than the church. I mean, the richest men in the world, the billionaires of our time, none of them have anything to do with any churches. They're not preaching the gospel. They have empires. They're successful. They have followers. They have Instagram followers and Facebook followers and Twitter followers in the millions. They have billions and billions and billions of dollars. They have thousands and thousands of employees. And then here's 35 people sitting on a Sunday night, and you think, (laughs) you know, maybe Elon Musk is into something that we're not. Maybe we should take notes from him. Friends, ultimately, Every empire of the world will crumble and fail. We are, to this day, archaeologically digging up empires that once were the most vast empires in the entire world. If it is of man, it will fail. It may not fail tomorrow. It may may not fail even for generations. But when the world is rolled up like a scroll, everything will fail except that which is of God. And that, nothing can be done about. That is true, and that is our hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The church is of God, and no matter the persecution, no matter the jail sentencing, no matter, no matter the beatings, no matter the murders, no matter the martyrdom, even failure of church individuals like we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, nothing will stop the church. It will never fail. Do you believe that? Because it's easy to look around and think that that's not true, but do you, do you know Jesus? Do you see what he did? Do you you, you see the cross? Do you understand it? Have you read about it? Have you studied it? Do you believe it? And if you believe it, do you embrace it? Not do 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 you acknowledge it intellectually. That was the biggest mistake that I made for the vast majority of my life is that I thought, well, I understand the cross intellectually, so I think I'm good with God. Let's move on. 
who in this party has a bag of cocaine that I can buy from you? Because I'm good. I got my eternity set, so now let's have some fun. My life wasn't changed because I didn't know Jesus. I knew about the cross. I knew about Jesus. I believed in Jesus to a certain extent, but I didn't embrace him. I didn't have fellowship with him, and there's a big difference. You see the cross. You see agony. You see death. You see decay. You see a man crumbling apart. You see a man falling apart. You see the absolute victory over death. The cross devoured death, 1 Corinthians says. He was raised from the dead because his life was overqualified for death, and that is the life that he gives you. So the world can have its billions and have its thousands of employees and have all of its success. And, and conversely, you know, you have a place like Skate Church that faithfully, and I've heard people, I've heard people say things like this. Well, if they were, you know, if, if this church service or if this ministry is being faithful and doing right and they're not like behind closed doors have some sort of other life going on, they're one way up front and then a whole other way behind the scenes. If there isn't that sort of duality, I mean, then why would a, why would a, a ministry fail? I, I don't know. Jesus was doing everything perfect and he wound up getting killed. So I don't know why ministries, good, faithful ministries like Skate Church, just all of a sudden, I mean, it was just one thing, and it was, it was done. 30 plus years of faithful ministry, and it was gone. And you're like, well, I thought if it's of God, it will not fail. We have to think big picture here, friends. God is doing and moving in ways that we cannot understand, and that is why we need to trust him. And I have faith and trust that Skate Church will come back. I really hope that it will. But if it doesn't, do you know Jesus? Do you trust him? I do. I trust him. Why did Skate Church end? I don't know. Why did my dad die? I don't know. Friends, it comes down to do you trust him? Because we cannot look at this world and our circumstances and then come to any conclusions about him other than he works all things for the good. And the early church knew that. They believed in him. They trusted him. They embraced him. And so even after getting beaten, and I'm, I'm done. We'll close out with this. Verse, verse 40, 41. They got beaten, commanded not to speak in this name anymore, and they went from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been considered to suffer shame for the name, and every day and in the temple from house to house they did not cease teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. These people had a hope beyond the walls of the world. They had a hope in Jesus Christ who defeated death, swallowed it up, done. That'll give you hope. That'll give you, that will give you some buoyancy. The 80 years we have on earth, 85 years we have on earth, for an eternity, that is what these people knew. Second Chronicles 13, 12 says, do not fight against Yahweh, the God of our fathers, for you will not succeed. There it is again, the God of our fathers. The apostles knew this. And what Gamaliel basically tells his cronies is, hey, listen, just leave this alone. There's no reason to get involved. It's either going to come to nothing or there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Either way, mind your business. So they beat them and they release them. This beating typically would be done with a whip of calfskin. One-third of the strikes would take place on the stomach. Two-thirds of the strikes would take place on the back. And how many strikes a man got was sort of up to the moment, up to the offense. But they couldn't exceed the number 40. And so they get whipped, they get beaten, and they run away rejoicing. That is something that you can't, man, what do you, what do you need Back to the original question. What is it that you need to feel secure? If I had this thing, I'd be okay. I'll tell you what. 
I read a story like this and I think, get arrested, have a lot of enemies, have people who actively want me dead. I get beaten, whipped at least 39 times with, with calfskin leather straps. And I go away rejoicing, stoked, and continue doing the thing that got me arrested and whipped. I want what they have. I want something that this world can't offer me. Money, health, fame, blah, blah, blah. I want, I want this Jesus, this invincible, unstoppable, immutable, overqualified for death, God of the universe, Jesus Christ. I want him. They went away rejoicing because, again, Matthew 5, great was their reward in heaven. Not the 80 years they had here. Great was their reward for all of eternity. I'd like to do the math sometime. Let's just say for the sake of conversation that Peter lived to be 70 years old. How many times has 70 years passed since Peter died? 70 years, we've about 22,000 plus years from from the early church, from Jesus' death and resurrection, how many times over has Peter experienced eternal life with a glory that is beyond comprehension? 2 Corinthians 4. That, you know, that was the verse. Whenever we started this Bible study in the side parlor of a church who graciously let us use their space two years ago, the verse that we picked, we called it Redbird, this little Bible study, Redbird Bible study, the verse that we chose to use for our little study there was 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and following. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. The whipping that these guys took that day over 2,000 years ago was a seed that God planted in heaven and, it, and used it to make heaven that much more flourishing for them when they got there. This light and momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. This is the Jesus that the world wants. Amen? Let's tell this world about this Jesus because he's amazing. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me.